Welcome to this week's podcast. I'm Mickey Badlamenti, discipleship pastor here at Rock Point Community Church. Our goal in the messages we share is to consistently present God's truth in ways that will challenge you, bring you new perspective, and ultimately lead you into closer relationship with God through Jesus Christ. Wherever you're listening from, we hope this message encourages you in your faith. We also welcome you to visit us anytime you're in the Detroit area. Our Sunday services are at 9 and 11 a.m. and include a full range of children's programs, as well as a ministry specifically for children with special needs. Find us on Facebook or visit our website at rockpoint.org for more information. Dad is an identical twin, and no matter which brother takes the baby, he thinks the other one is Daddy. Who's that? Who's that? So who's the real dad? It's the guy in the gray sweater. Before I explain the reason for that, uh, let me just say one more time. Um, You guys, I'm really impressed and surprised somewhat. We have actually changed church culture here. Um, so many of you have actually been showing up uh, actually on time or a little bit early that it's been changing the very culture and I believe it also changes the atmosphere in here. So just a, a thanks again for those you've been able to do it. And again, grace for those of you that uh, were not able to be on time. We understand there's everything from children to tornadoes to natural disasters, which are children being tornadoes, to um, lots of other reasons. And so please feel grace on that. But um, those of you who've been really making that effort, just thank you for that. Um, what you just saw up there were you know, twins, and I wanted to use that to highlight this next half of the series. We began a series entitled The Binding, and we were referring to a book I was using specifically in my Bible, which had been rebound, so the original notes and uh, um, writings and uh, passage, everything else I had marked up for decades was present, but it was now bound together uh, in a new cover. And we're using that as an illustration these last four times, uh, using past um, uh, art pieces throughout the building that we had marked in our history of who we are and that we're holding on to. Those are some of the internal things that we're not going to be changing. These next four are things that have actually been a part of who we are. And yet, how they are being interpreted and understood today in the world has changed. And so we felt a need to put down again another marker over these next several weeks of where our stance is in regards to this and why we feel this is important uh, to hold on this. What you just saw there were, were a series of twins whose children were really confused um, by that. I think my favorite one is actually the middle one where the little girl, she was so bright, her eyes, you just watch her, okay, that's this, something's not right here. And you just see her eyes going back and forth, but then she's like, okay, yeah. And then she was really processing intellectually in a way that I'm not sure the other two were, but there was that sense of confusion when faced with things that appeared almost identical and yet were not. One was a true father or mother, the other one was not. And I've processed this a lot lately um, as I've been looking more closely and engaging with our millennials and others of the current generation, the level of confusion is so high. This generation has faced more depression, anxiety, and anger than I've seen before. And this grows across all generations. But 
for those of us that were growing up in a different time, we only were told that there were two genders. Now this generation's told there's 350 and climbing. We thought it was confusing enough with just two to figure things out. And now they're faced with this plethora of that. The information sources were three news stations maybe. Now it's you pick and choose amongst thousands of what's out there. We were told there was right and wrong. You could rebel against that. You could react to that. You could argue it as fuddy-duddy and all sorts of things. But there was no confusion as to what that was. Now what is right, what is wrong, what is moral, what is immoral is completely up for grabs. And so the level of confusion that we're seeing, not just in this generation, but across the generations is extreme today. And the word confusion means to overthrow or ruin. To overthrow or ruin. And I see us increasingly as a nation being overthrown and drawn into ruin in the midst of this confusion, also referred to as a disorder, a mingling or a mixing, a blending. And so at its core, it means an act of mingling together two or more things or notions that were properly meant to be separate, mixing together produced, to produce indistinctness or error. To produce indistinctness or error. A couple of weeks ago, I was just flipping through the channels one time, and I saw a movie uh, that was from 1960. Normally, I wouldn't be drawn to it, but, but I was intrigued because I quickly picked up, as I saw the header underneath it, that it was the, uh, a movie entitled The Story of Ruth. And because of how the costume and everything else, I thought, okay, they're attempting to convey the book of Ruth from the Bible. And so I watched this film from 1960 with some major stars on it. Stuart Whitman was one of them. A lot of them don't know that anymore, but they were major stars of that time period. And, and it, it, I wasn't really thrilled with it a whole lot, but I was caught by this issue. Here's a film that was mainstream box office for its day in 1960, and it was dealing with a biblical theme of the book of Ruth, and it assumed certain things of its audience. It's assumed that most people, if not everyone, would have known this story and knew from where it came from. And I was intrigued by the fact of how different it was from 1960 to now when a mainstream box off of film would have attempted to sell a Bible story with the assumption everybody would have known it and understood it. And how they concluded then with a quote from the book of Ruth. This whole idea of today with our level of confusion and the way that we are caught with stuff today has changed how our society operates. Back in 2016, the word um, of the year by Oxford Dictionary was post-truth. In 2017, we were introduced to alternate facts. Time Magazine wrote an article said, is truth dead? Then in 2018, we had Rudy Giuliani saying, truth isn't truth anymore. But it goes back even further to Bill Clinton in 1998 trying to discuss the definition of is. President Obama, you can keep your doctor. You'll notice, please, that I've been completely bipartisan in attacking both sections in this discussion so far. But it goes back actually even further than even these things that have shaped us today. It goes back to Stephen Colbert, actually, that great philosopher of Western civilization, portraying his character, Dr. Stephen Colbert. He chose the word truthiness. 
Truthiness is the quality of seeming or being felt to be true, even if it's not necessarily true. The quality of seeming or being felt to be true, even if it's not necessarily true. He chose this word, Colbert, just moments before taping the premiere episode of The Colbert Report on October 17, 2005, after deciding that the originally scripted word, truth, was not absolutely ridiculous enough. According to him, quote, we're not talking about truth. We're talking about something that seems like truth. The truth we want to exist, he explained. He went on to say, you don't look up truthiness in a book. You look it up in your gut. It just feels right. He introduced this definition in the first segment of the episode saying this. Now I'm sure some of the word police and wordanistas over at Webster's are going to say, hey, that's not a word. Well, anybody who knows me know I'm no fan of dictionaries or reference books. They're elitist. Constantly telling us what is or isn't true, what did or didn't happen. We're way beyond that, he's basically saying. He went on at one point in time... um, seriously to discuss this in saying this, it used to be everyone was entitled to their own opinion, but not their own facts. Everyone was entitled to their own opinion, but not their own facts. But that's not the case anymore. Facts matter not at all, he said. Perception is everything. He broke it down further in another interview. He says, truthiness is what I say is right. And nothing anyone else says could possibly be true. It's not only that I feel it to be true, but that I feel it to be true. Not just that I feel it from my gut to be true, but I feel it to be true. One commentator said that's not an emotional quality. He said it's not not only an emotional quality, but there's a selfish quality to it. In 2012, a study examining truthiness was carried out by a PhD student, Aaron Newman of Victoria University of Wellington, New Zealand. The experiment showed that people are more likely to believe a claim is true regardless of the evidence when a decorative photograph appears along beside it. So regardless of whether it's true or not, we're more likely to believe that it's true if there's a decorative photograph appearing along beside it, or as I like to say, It's got to be true. There's a picture of puppies alongside it. Therefore, this thing must be true. Now, to expand upon this issue of truth, I want to present to you a commercial. Now, please ignore what it's trying to sell you. Just grasp the truthiness behind this commercial. I'm your cat. And ever since you brought me home that day, well, I've been plotting to destroy you. Sizing you up, calculating your every move. You think this is love? This is a billion years of tiger DNA just ready to pounce. And if you got the wrong home insurance coverage, you could be coughing up the cash for this. So get all state and be better protected from mayhem, like meow. This captures the essence of what I refer to as my own term, Katniss. Not to be confused with the Hunger Games individual, Katniss is a type of nature that is evil and ugly 
and dark and vicious. This is my truth. You may have your truth. And if I'm feeling generous, I'll allow you your truth, even though it's clearly wrong. <laughs> now, most of you that been around know that I'll tease on the cats and the dog deals. Um, mostly, I'll say this in a hyperbole, mostly it's a, it's a point of amusement. There are actually cats, if I were to, to go to, if you expand the idea of what cat is, not catness. Um, Aslan, one of my favorite characters in, in history, it's an imagery of Christ, uh, who's a giant lion. Um, the Lion of Judah is referred to, so you have arguments more for positive views of cats, certainly in scripture, than you do of dogs. My experience with cats has shaped what I offer to you. Um, I had a, a friend who had a Siamese cat when I was young, and Siamese are beautiful cats, but they have bred all the brains right out of this breed. Okay, there are no brains, nothing but sheer viciousness. And it would slash my ankles, jump on my back. That was my experience with cats. And so through that filter, I now view all cats and all items. I'm, I know scientifically that there are, and spiritually perhaps, that there are good cats. I just don't see them. <laughs> now my sister, on the other hand, was bitten viciously when she was young by a dog on the face. Now, she's okay with dogs and gets along with them well, but she has a much more tolerant attitude and view of cats than I would have. What this comes to is an issue of what we experience and how we translate that experience into reality than what is actually the truth of the situation. The statement of truth by one definition is that which is in accordance with fact or reality. That which is in accordance with fact or or reality. In Romans chapter 1 verse 29, we are told that they, meaning us really, have become filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, and depravity. They're full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, and malice. We as a people are gossips. We're slanderers, God-haters, insolent, arrogant, and boastful. They invent ways of doing evil. They disobey their parents, which seems like a non sequitur, except that it's saying that we reject authority at even the most intimate of levels or a generational perspective of any kind. They have no understanding, no fidelity, no love, no mercy. But, but how does it get that way? Previous in the chapter, it tells us in Romans chapter 1 verse 25 that they, we exchange the truth about God for a lie. And then we worship and we serve the created things. That We exchange the truth about God for a lie. We reject those things that are written in scripture. We reject the idea of objective truth. It's all subjective. It's my truth, your truth. There is nothing that stands above or beyond to challenge us at all. And yet we're talking about a collection of wisdom and understanding that is believed to be not only inspired by God, but has had thousands of years of application and impact more so than any other book or any other representation of truth that we find anywhere throughout the world. When I was a kid growing up, I took Shakespeare classes in high school and in college. I was adept at it. I didn't realize until halfway through the reason why is because back then we only had the King James Version, which was Elizabethan English, and I'd been reading that since I could read in church through the Bible. And so reading Shakespeare was no big deal. I was used to the these and the thous and all the rest that went with it. But both in high school and in college, 
My professors and my teachers told me why Shakespeare, this writer from centuries past, why is he so relevant today and why will he always be relevant to human beings regardless of culture? They said it was because he dealt with timeless themes, with the aspects of man and women that don't change throughout time. Our greeds, our passions, our lusts, our nobility, our ugliness. In the same way, this book, Greater Than Shakespeare, deals with the timelessness of God, the purity of who he is, and an understanding of mankind that leaves Shakespeare even in the dust, and every single aspect of it has application to us. If you ever saw the movie Rain Man, then maybe you might have grasped if you dug into it a little deeper that the man who actually inspired that 1988 film about an autistic savant with astounding mathematical skills was based on a guy named Kim Peek. Kim Peek is what doctors call a mega savant. A savant possesses remarkable expertise in one to three different subjects, but Peek is an expert in at least 15, including history, sports, space, music, and geography. No one in the world is thought to possess a brain as extraordinary as Kim Peek. He has a total recall of 9,000 books. Total recall. Every dot, every page, every word. It was discovered that each of Peek's eyes can read a separate page simultaneously. That's just freaky. (laughs) Simultaneously and absorb every word in his memory. In fact, a page that might take you or me three minutes to read, Peek can read in 10 seconds and he'll never forget it. So this guy, he goes to a performance of Shakespeare's play, The Twelfth Night. And as the play was ending, Peek stood up and said aloud, he interrupts the ending. As everyone's applauding, he starts yelling out and interrupts and says, you've got to stop it, stop it, stop it. He's autistic, okay, but he's a savant. And so he can't control himself. Stop it, stop it. It turned out that the actor had skipped the second to the last verse of the play. The actor then apologized publicly saying, the verses are so much alike, I didn't think it would matter. And Peek responded in his autistic fashion, it mattered to Shakespeare and it should matter to you. It mattered to Bill. It should matter to you. It mattered to the creator of the work. It should matter to you. How much more should the word of God matter to us? How much more so should those things that are beyond just an understanding of man's nature, but to the core of who he is, matter to us? Truth, reality, scripture still has relevance to us today. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 11 and 15 talk about a gathering like this indirectly. These are gifts Christ gave to the church, the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, pastors, teachers. Their responsibility is to equip God's people to do his work, bring glory to him like we said last week to build up the church, the body of Christ. This will continue until we come to such unity in our faith and knowledge of God's Son that we will be mature in the Lord. In other words, that we grow up, measuring up to the full and complete standard of Christ. 
But I want to draw your attention to verse 14. Then we will no longer be immature like children. We won't be tossed and blown about by every wind of new teaching. We'll not be influenced when people try to trick us with lies so clever they sound like the truth. I want to read that again. We won't be tossed and blown about by every wind of new teaching. We will not be influenced when people try to trick us with lies so clever that they sound like the truth. We live today, regardless of our generation, in this world of confusion, of a mixing of things. We are literally in what what Genesis refers to as the land of confusion, not the biblical Genesis, the band Genesis from 1980s. This land of confusion. All of us have something that sociologists and psychologists refer to as confirmation bias. Confirmation bias is the tendency to search for, interpret, favor, and recall information in a way that affirms one's prior beliefs or hypothesis. It's a type of cognitive bias and systematic error of inductive reasoning. Interesting thing, they also find that people also tend to interpret ambiguous evidence as supporting their existing position. So we all come with a bias towards a certain mindset and we look for things that will reinforce that or will recall only things that reinforce that. And if something's even kind of neutral, we assume that it actually supports our position. In his book, Research in Psychology, Methods of Design, C. James Godwin gives a great example of this, and he puts it this way. Persons believing in extrasensory perception, telepathy and all that, will keep close track of instances when they were thinking about mom, and then the phone rang, and it was her. She was reading my mind. We're connected. It's extrasensory. Yet they ignore the far more numerous times when, A, they were thinking about mom and she didn't call, B, they weren't thinking about mom and she did call. They also fail to recognize that if they talk to mom about every two weeks, their frequency of about thinking about mom will increase near the end of the two-week interval, thereby, thereby increasing the frequency of a hit. Confirmation bias. Some of you absolutely hate President Trump. Some of you absolutely love President Trump. I'm really trying to keep a neutral face on this. Whether you are for him or against him, you tend to look for, find information that will reinforce that view. And you lock into that and as a result, tend to ignore facts or truth that would be opposed to whatever your view is. We view the same, we bring the same confirmation bias into reading scripture. We bring the darkening of our own thoughts. And so we pick out words or things that will seemingly randomly reinforce what our thinking is instead of looking for the truth as it actually is. Matthew Vines is a very bright, very personable young man who's committed to a homosexual lifestyle. And so he's brought his background to a reading of scripture and finds that the Bible supports a homosexual lifestyle. One of his proof texts that he goes to is in the book of Genesis, not the band Genesis, stay with me. The book of Genesis, where um, it is said that man is alone 
And God says, that's not good. And so Vans goes, on to, Vans goes on to say, therefore, when we have people commit to a lifestyle where they cannot be with their life partner of the same-sex attraction, we're going against God because he says that's not good. That is just poor theology. Because if you complete the understanding of that passage, he says, no, it's not good. And so he makes specifically a woman what the scripture refers to as a like opposite. But when we bring our biases to the scripture, we tend to find what we want to find instead of what is truth. Respond to this. Respond to this. It's safe. Is God holy? Yes. Way better than first service. They were really a little slow on that. You guys are good with this, okay? Same thing. No tricks here. Is God love? Yes. Okay. You have two things that are absolutely true, not just according to our experience, but according to our understanding of God. But it provides a tremendous challenge for us. If God is holy, then he is utterly pure and cannot tolerate sin. He's the ultimate in goodness. If he is love, though, then he embraces and nurtures and cares. When those things are brought together, how do we process that? If we go to our biases, if we go to our own selves, then we have a tendency to want to divorce these from one another and to say, he's just holy. Therefore, Matthew Vines is going to hell. Or if we divorce the holiness and we embrace only this, oh, Matthew Vines, is, he's a loving, good man. He's, he's right on and should be followed and his method should be explored more deeply because God accepts everyone and loves everybody. But the truth is God is holy and he's love. And applying those two things together provides us a challenge. It causes us to have to think more deeply about issues that frankly are often shallowly addressed and viewed. If we were to look inside the scripture here and we look down into John 8, 31, we have him finding that to the Jews that believe him, Jesus said, if you hold my teaching, you're really my disciples, then you'll know the truth and the truth will set you free. But there's something about not just our truth and their truth, but there is truth. The truth, if you want to put it this way, then you can say there's God's truth and there's my truth and there's your truth. But God's truth is over everything. All our truths must bow down to his and where they do not align, they are not truths at all, but false. If truth is actually the definement of what is real, then the one who created reality overrides anything else. Regardless of what our own confirmation bias may say at the end of the day. God's truth impacts as I come to this book, as I engage God in prayer, as I begin to identify my biases that, 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 that will give a pass to someone whose behavior is totally inappropriate just because I support certain views or, or I will ignore the bias of, 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 a, of a media that would attack without any concern as I look at both of those and can recognize the falsities of both of those and then come to say, how does God view the falseness 
of those things? How do I process that? But it goes deeper, as Solzhenitsyn said, Alexander, the, the line of evil runs through the hearts of every man. So as I come to this and I find my own actions challenged, but my bias is to say, but God is loving on this one. He's really holy where your sin's concerned, but he's loving where mine's concerned. If I embrace those together and I come, then I find change happening in my own life and challenge and a brokenness. And every time I come to this and I'm aware of my own sin, I keep breaking upon this and breaking upon this until finally I am broken and I cease that sin. Or at the very least, continue to say that it is still sin even while I'm in the midst of it. It goes deeper though than that. That passage in Ephesians continues on after we're not being deluded by people and misled. It says, once we do understand, once we do come to maturity, once we do grasp these things, in Ephesians chapter four, it says, then we will speak the truth in love. Growing in every way, more like Christ. We'll speak the truth in love. When Paul is talking to his young <coughs> protege in the faith, Timothy, in his second letter to him, Chapter 2, he says, And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to correct everyone, able to teach, patiently endure evil, correcting his opponents with viciousness and harshness. These guys were reading. You guys weren't. <laughs> Lord's servant, that's you, if you're a follower of Christ, and me, must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone. I don't like being kind to everyone. I like being kind to certain people. But everyone is a broad stroke that's hard. But to be kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with... Let's try this one more time. It's just one word. It's just one word, okay? Correcting his opponents with... Gentleness. With gentleness. It's not terribly long ago, I had someone in my office who was just off the rails on something. And I'll be honest, my first instinct was just to, to yell at them and just say, get out of my office. I was so offended. I was so angry. Just get out. Scriptures like this mess me up. I don't like them. I don't like them at all. It's because of scriptures like that and stuff like this that I had to be kind and thoughtful and nice. I did not feel kind, thoughtful, or nice, nor in the reality should I have been, in my opinion. And cats are evil. <laughs> but it says that we're supposed to do it with gentleness. Why? Because God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to knowledge of the truth, and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. So it says that we're supposed to approach people even when we have truth, even when we move past our confirmation bias, that we're still approached to approach individuals with a gentleness and a grace. The tone of our truth-telling makes all the difference. The tone of our truth-telling can build a wall or a bridge. There's a couple that lives in Ann Arbor. I don't know them but I read about them recently. They're in Ann Arbor, Michigan, a guy named Ed and Barb Waltz. 
like the dance. And they witnessed two types of truth-telling by two doctors. The Waltz's daughter named Deb has cerebral palsy. Barb had hoped that Deb would walk one day, according to the article, and after performing a battery of tests, the first doctor led Ed and Barb into a small conference room where he bluntly laid out for them what they could expect. In a tone that was cold and emotionally disconnected from his patient, the doctor said, quote, it's extremely unlikely that your daughter will ever walk. Still in a state of shock, state of shock from the devastating news, Barb asked, kind of brokenly, but what, what, what kind of shoes should I buy for my daughter? She's thinking about some special corrective shoes or, or perhaps shoes connected to a brace. Without even trying to soften the blow, the doctor retorted, buy her whatever kind of shoes you want. She won't be able to use them to walk in. And with that, he quickly left the room and Barb burst into tears. Several months later, the article said that the family met with a second doctor, and this time the entire scene felt different, though. Ed said, my wife asked this new doctor essentially the same question she had asked the first one. She was still wondering if there was anything we could do that might enable our daughter to even take a few steps. The doctor paused for a moment, thinking, always good to pause and think before you speak, just as a thought. Then he looked compassionately and directly into Barb's eyes and said, you know what I would do if I were you, Mrs. Waltz? I'd buy my daughter the prettiest little pink shoes I could find with purple shoelaces. And Barb knew what he meant. Ed said, we talked about our experience on the way home. Both doctors had told us the same thing. Deb would never walk. I'm ashamed to say what we felt like doing to the first doctor. Kind of what I wanted to do in my office that day. But we felt like hugging the second doctor. The tone of our truth-telling can build a bridge, build a wall, rather, or a bridge. It depends on what we want to do with that. We can't say that each one of us has our own individual truth, and it's just a matter of truthiness or, or what our gut says. And so this conversation today is not... A complicated thing, the title is simply truth. It's simply to say that as a congregation that we want to hold to the truth, that we want to have the truth of God's word judge us, that we want to set aside our confirmation biases even when it's in our favor, to come to a word that is sharper than a two-edged sword, to be changed and transformed by that truth, to align our truth or even set that aside to conform to God's overarching truth and understanding of reality. To realize that he shaped us and made us and understands us. And all of society and all of the world in a way that Shakespeare could have only dreamed of in his wildest imaginations. And then to approach others, not in arrogance, but in thoughtfulness and gentleness, recognizing as the prophet Isaiah says in the 53rd chapter, verse six, we all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us have turned to our own way. Each of us have garnered our own truth. And yet it says, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Just prior to Verse 6, which I've just read to you, is verse 5 of the prophet Isaiah in the 53rd chapter of his writing. And 
This passage has always caught me. So before he talks about the sheep, he says, but he was pierced for our iniquity, for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. And the punishment that brought us peace was on him. And by his wounds, we are healed. Christ is not only the way and the life, he is also the truth of how reality is, of how human beings function. I'm going to ask you to do an exercise. I'm going to ask you to do a little piece of homework. There was a paper that was in your bulletin. And what I'm going to ask you to do is take this piece of paper, not right now. But I'm going to ask you to do this. I'd like you to think. I'd like you to process what is a passage of Scripture that has had particular meaning to you. I don't want you to sign it but I do want you to return it. Now, if you're just visiting, this does not apply to you. There's a certain reason why I'm asking for this. And do it, I need to have those of you who are engaged in this congregation to handwrite. And because I'm assuming that most of you have um, penmanship like me, you need to print it out slowly. (laughs) And not just the reference. Not just like putting Zechariah, you know, 2000 verse 5 which is not in scripture, but that you write out the entire scripture by hand. If you really, it's like, you know a scripture, it's just right there for you. Then, then write out and leave it at your seat here today. If not, bring it back later, put it in the offering, put it in a box outside, but I need to collect these from you. I, I, I want to check something. I want to see something. Do not sign it. Write it out in its completion. In fact, I would encourage you not to fill it out even here. I would encourage you to go back because too often we approach this word as, as our own magic eight ball and we pull scriptures out of context. Whatever scripture's in your mind right now, I would encourage you to go back and read that scripture. Read notes on it. Look what comes before and afterwards and any other references that are linked to it. Really examine what that passage of scripture is. Maybe you want to change from that one to something else. But I'm going to ask if you would do that and then handwrite this and then return this somewhere in the next week or two of time. It's important. And I would ask you if you'd really seriously consider doing that. We're going we're gonna to conclude the service in just a few minutes' time, and you're going to go to lunch, and you're going to actually be a few minutes earlier than usual, and I know that's really important truth to you. And so as we wrap and conclude this, I want to read to you a final scripture, John 4, 23. Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in the spirit and in truth, for they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. The time is coming and has fact now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. This was probably my father's favorite passage of scripture. I heard it repeated more than anything else from that Pentecostal background that liked to emphasize the Holy Spirit and its work. And it's saying that without the Holy Spirit, we can't even fully comprehend or get past our own biases as we try to pursue these things. But it was also meaning that we're to come and worship God in spirit, in the authenticity of who we are. Spirit meaning the core identity of of who we are. 
and authentically seek who he truly is, that there is an objective truth that not only shapes, defines, but explains reality. And part of the goal of mankind is to bring ourselves into alignment with that and so that we bring the very essence of who we are with all our biases, failings, and shortcomings. And we seek the truth and reality of who he is. With the guidance of the Holy Spirit, let that change and transform us so that we become true worshipers. Truth in a land of confusion is something that as a church we are holding to. And we will not let go of And we will come and try to understand that as simply as we can and to explain that to others as gently and respectfully as we can. Now, the next several weeks, we'll break that down a little bit further of the impact of what that means. But for now, Father, we come before you. And Lord, we come with a brokenness and a humility, maybe even a repentance at how many times we have misused your truth to either hurt someone else or to support a confirmation bias of our own that is not even true or real. I pray, God, that today would challenge our thinking and our processing. More than ever before in a land of confusion, there's a need for clarity, for gentleness, but also for strength and boldness. Lord, let us understand that there is a truth that is you, that you came to explore and to give us this truth. Let our minds be fixed upon it. Let our own ways be shattered by it. Let our thirsty souls be restored and encouraged in the midst of it, I pray. All blessings, all truth comes from God. All of reality recognizes that and bows down before it. How much more so we as humans? There's a truth that there's three in one, but it's all of creation recognized. God is the definer of reality and truth. As you go into your week, don't go into it with confusion. Don't go into it with anxiety and anger. Go into it with a quiet and gentle spirit. Seek out God's truth and set aside your confirmation biases in the midst of it. Grow and mature so you're not faked out by every simple lie that comes down the line. And then with gentleness and respect, convey that to those around you when the time and the relationships are appropriate to do so. There'll be those available up front here for prayer if you'd like to have prayer. Otherwise, over the next three weeks, we're going to unpack how we approach the issue of truth on several key cultural issues. Father, I thank you for your grace. I thank you, Lord, for brothers and sisters with which to share uh, even ideas and to discuss and, and encourage and sharpen one another. Guide us, Lord God, as we keep this central to us as a congregation. Give us the wisdom as to how to apply these things properly. In the name of Jesus Christ, we pray. And the church said, Amen. Amen.